This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello. It's great that you could be with the program today where we're going through the eight verses of mind training by Langri Tampa. Now, over the last couple of programs, we've been discussing aspects of the sixth verse. When somebody whom I have benefited and in, in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. In normal everyday terms, we would probably think it right and proper to take revenge on anybody who gave us terrible harm, and especially someone we had trusted implicitly. Many societal impulses encourage us to think this way. For instance, how many action movies and TV series are predicated on somebody who is hideously betrayed and who sets out to exact dire revenge? However, mostly we are neither that badly betrayed, nor do we have Rambo-like resources to go on a giant vengeance spree. In fact, it seems from a trawl through the internet that the people most likely to look for revenge are those cheated on by a partner or a spouse. On a revenge page on cosmopolitan.com, you will find stories like this. My guy and I had been together for five months when my friends saw him with another girl. I confronted him the next day and he apologized. I forgave him, but a week later my friends and I were driving around and saw his car parked at the same girl's house. His car has keypad entry, and I knew the code to get in. So I opened the car and used permanent marker to scribble some choice words and pictures all over the upholstery. Before leaving, I put a note on the dashboard that read, Sorry about your car, but I bet you're sorrier for cheating. However, as we saw in our last program, revenge is very often actually counterproductive. As Kevin Carl Smith, the Harvard social scientist who led experiments on the effects of revenge, found, vengeful people experience more unpleasant and longer emotional turmoil than people who forgave and move on. Vengeance seekers tend to brood over the wrong and wrongdoer for a lot longer and may never get over the hurt they've experienced. An article with a cumbersome title how to pull off the greatest revenge on the person that did you wrong on the website hub pages cites two true situations of a similar nature but with very different endings to illustrate the point. The author says in the article that he was personally in touch with both situations. He writes, First story. A woman's husband cheated on her and left her for this other woman. The first woman stayed bitter about it and never was able to get over it. She dwelled on it and brought it up every time her children were together for family gatherings, trying to turn their, her children against their father. She died with a bitterness and had also caused her children to pity her 
for the last 30 years of her life. Second story. A second woman's husband cheated on her and left her for the other woman. She grieved, she forgave, she moved on. After a while, she decided to become friends with him and his new wife for the sake of their children, and she remarried someone else. To this day, she's happier than ever. About five years after the divorce from her cheating husband, her ex-husband came to her in tears, explaining that divorcing her was the biggest mistake of his life. There was no going back at that point, though. Now, after having again made the point that revenge is often more harmful than beneficial to an avenger, let's now take a pause to set our motivation for the program today. As usual, if you can please make bodhicitta your motivation, that is, something like, may this program become the cause for me to attain enlightenment, so I can best benefit all beings in whatever way they need. But if that's not possible, please make participating in the program a cause for your own personal enlightenment. Thank you. Speaking about forgiveness, I came across an odd little bit of research on the website nymag.com on the subject of carrying grudges. In an article titled Holding a Grudge May Literally Hold You Down, Melissa Dahl writes that there seems to be a deep psychological connection between forgiveness and the idea of unburdening oneself. After all, she writes, we speak of carrying grudges as though they were actual physical things we haul around on our backs. She goes on to write of the research by Zhui Jing of Erasmus University, reported in the journal Social Psychological and Personality Science, which shows there might be a good reason for this. Zhui Zheng conducted two experiments, which indicated that students reminded of a time they had forgiven someone responded to physical challenges as though they carried less weight than others thinking of a time they refused to forgive. Dahl writes, In one experiment, Zheng asked 160 undergrads to write about a time they had experienced a conflict. Some were instructed to reflect on a time when they didn't forgive the offender. Others were told to think about the time they did forgive the person. And a third group wrote about a comparatively dull social interaction, a recent conversation with a co-worker, for example. They were then given a small physical challenge, jumping five times as high as they could without bending their knees. The results suggest that the weight of carrying a grudge may be more than just a metaphor. Students who had been primed to think about a time they forgave someone jumped the highest, about 30 centimetres. Those prompted to think of a time they withheld forgiveness, on the other hand, jumped about 22 centimetres on average. Zheng found no significant difference in the jumps of those in the non-forgiveness and neutral conditions. In another similar experiment, Zheng reports in the paper people who had been set up to think about a time they held a grudge estimated that a hill was steeper than people who were thinking about a time they forgave someone. Dahl continues, this is another entry in the growing field of embodied perception, the idea that the way we interact with our mental and physical realities are heavily intertwined. And she points to another research that shows that if you offer someone a warm cup of tea, they'll feel more warmly towards you. Zheng and her team concluded, and this is a quote, 
A state of unforgiveness is like carrying a heavy burden, a burden that victims bring with them when they navigate the physical world. Forgiveness can lighten this burden. So, there you go. The next time you mull over an argument or a wrong done to you and trudge around the world feeling heavy and clunky, it's because you are actually carrying all that mulling like a donkey with a heavy load on its back. Now, going back to the second story we quoted earlier, in which the woman managed to eventually forgive and befriend her ex-husband, let's also recollect the end of last week's program where we were considering the celebrated nun Tipton Children's take on betrayal and forgiveness. She points out that forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiving means releasing the negative emotions associated with the betrayal, and that takes time. It also takes, as we saw, a deep look into the situation to see the causes for the betrayal, especially those we ourselves may have brought about unwittingly. What about our expectations? Were they perhaps a bit too high? If we do see that our expectations were actually unrealistic, it might go a long way to quietening the hurt and anger we feel. Also, we can realize that under the influence of afflictive emotions, we all mess up, sometimes again and again. In betraying us, our betrayer may have been in exactly that situation, helpless in the grip of his or her own afflictive emotions. And with this thought in mind, it might make it a little easier to contemplate if this person, this betrayer, is worthy of our further trust or not. However, Tupton Children stresses that we must give the situation plenty of time before making any decisions. In the second story, the woman took years to heal enough to decide to be friends with her husband again. If she'd rushed it, the hurt may not have had time to fully heal, and then, instead of making friends with him, she may have found herself in the uncomfortable position of trying to be nice but still seething inside and placing all sorts of blame on him. And blame, Tupton Children says, is something we should try our very best to avoid. You betrayed this. You're so awful. You owe me something. I want blood in repayment for what you've done to me. That kind of behavior, she says, is a sure way to ruin the relationship irrevocably. She says, as soon as you want blood and you're expecting them to do something incredible to show how repentant they are and you're demanding it and you're not going to be satisfied until you get it, then that's putting so much pressure on the other person that they're probably going to turn away from you. Even if they try and please you, it's never going to be good enough. I think in these kinds of situations, the chief thing you have to do is heal yourself and learn to recover from your own hurt. Learn to recover from and release your own anger. Then, as you do that, and your mind gets clear and your mind gets more balanced, then I think you're going to see, do I want to remain in a marriage or in a relationship with this person or not? If we don't take enough time to heal, to arrive at a relatively stable place from which to make our decisions, there will be too many strong emotions at play, and we will inevitably make decisions that cause more suffering, not less. Says Tipton Children, Like I said, this takes some time, but the chief work is to use the Dharma practice on yourself, and to release the hurt, release the anger, generate some compassion and some empathy for yourself and also for the other sentient being. 
realize we're all stuck in samsara together, which is precisely why we want to practice the Dharma, so we can all get out. Until we get out, the same whole process is going to keep going on and on and on and on in future lives. As long as we're in samsara as individuals with afflictions, we're either going to betray others' trust or they're going to betray our trust. There's no way around it. It's a given in samsara. So, she says, we have to use that realization to strengthen both our renunciation of samsara and our bodhicitta, our desire to become a Buddha so we can help others get out of samsara as well. She goes on to make the very valid point that if we are betrayed and decide to put a stop to our relationship with a betrayer, we're not actually ending the relationship. We can't actually end any relationship. The relationship might change into something quite different, but it continues nevertheless. She says, when we say end a relationship, what we really mean is we're changing it from, let's say, a marriage relationship to an ex-relationship or something like that. But you still have to create a new relationship with a person because we're always in relationship to every single sentient being. You never end any relationship. She continues, There's going to be lots of things that come into mind when you're deciding what kind of relationship you want to have with this person in the future. It could be that you've invested a lot of time and energy and this was one aberration. They seem repentant enough, so you're happy to go on. There could be financial concerns. There could be children involved. There could be so many other things. She says everyone in this kind of situation will make a different decision and even if a married couple breaks up, they will still have to relate to each other. You have property in common. Maybe you have kids in common, she says. So there's still some relationship. You still have to learn to talk decently to each other. You still have to let go of your anger and resentment and your hurt. Breaking up the relationship doesn't mean you end your bad feelings. You really have to see what you want to do, and everybody is going to come to a different conclusion about this. People are really, really different. What one person says is acceptable another person would say is unacceptable. So there's no cookie-cutter pattern for any of this. Now, if you're trying to be a good Buddhist, you may be feeling that you should work hard to forgive your betrayer. You should take up the relationship again and try to make it work as though nothing had really happened, even though deep down you really don't want to do that at all. You really at this time do not want to forgive the betrayer. Says Tupton Chodron, I don't see the logic in that. Somebody could think that, but there's nothing saying that if you're a Buddhist, you have to stay in a bad relationship. There's nothing that says that. Somebody could think that, but then they need to step back, and they need to look at the relationship to start with. Is it basically a good relationship, and it's had this bomb? Or is it a relationship that's never really been a very good relationship, in which case it would be better to separate? There shouldn't be any of this thing of, if I'm a good Buddhist, I should do X, Y, and Z. There's no reason to put that on top of your head. Buddhism is not about what you do in a situation. It's about what you do in your own mind. You could say, if I'm a good Buddhist, I should work on myself and pacify my own mind. But in terms of what you should do with the other person, you're going to make your own decision according to what conclusions you come to as you work on your own mind. 
Using marriage or a partnership as an example seems to make sense in this type of discussion because our deepest commitments are often to our partner or spouse. When the marriage or partnership goes wrong through infidelity or betrayal, we really feel it, don't we? That intensity of feeling when we are betrayed easily leads to a perception that it's all the betrayer's fault. I kept to my promise, I did everything right, they broke the promise, they're wrong. Tipton Children encourages a deeper examination of the whole relationship. She says, I think it might be good to consider too that if one spouse is wandering from the relationship, that maybe the relationship had been getting neglected. It can very easily happen when you've been married to somebody for a while, especially if you have kids, that you begin to neglect the other partner because there's so many other things going on in your life. Very often, a couple's very close when they first get married, and then when the kids come, they get so involved with the kids because you have to be on duty 25-8 with your kids. You don't have any time for your spouse anymore, so it's very easy for people to grow apart in those years of raising kids. She says that in those years, you have to first remember how important the relationship with your partner is. The children shouldn't get all one's attention. If you see that you're giving too much to the children, remind yourself actually that what I think is more important for the kids is for them to know their parents care about each other, she advises. Even if the parents don't spend quite as much time individually with the children, the children will feel very secure if they know that the parents care about each other. She goes on, It might be that the couple has been married and they don't have kids, so they don't have that distraction. But maybe something else has come up and their energy has been going in another direction. One spouse has been focusing on this, one spouse has been focusing on that. Somehow they haven't realized that they have been not coming together and sharing their ideas and their thoughts and their lives together as much as they could be. It could be a time when this happens that you realize, actually, we had grown apart a little bit without realizing it. So now's the opportunity to try and renew the relationship, but in a better way than it was before. The thing is, she says, you can never go back to the way the relationship was before. But I don't know that people want to go back to the way it was before. Usually, if something's happened, something wasn't satisfactory in the way it was before. If you decide to come back together, then you want to really spend some time and get to know each other again and do the things together that you haven't done before. Talk about things you haven't talked about before. Really spend time working on the relationship instead of thinking, we'll patch this thing and then we'll just go back to the way it was. That's not going to work. It's not going to be satisfactory for either of the parties. Now, I'm sure I don't have to prove Tupton Children's point, but I'm going to end the program with a story of a relationship change from a blog on the Huffington Post page, GPS of the Soul. It's by Susan Brink, author of The Fourth Trimester, Understanding, Protecting and Nurturing an Infant Through the First Three Months. The story from the blog, titled The Permanent Loss of an Ex, is not about betrayal, but I find it a good description of how a relationship may change even after a parting of the ways. I cannot really say the relationship becomes better, for in Buddhist terms it is obviously based on a lot of attachment. But maybe we can say it changed for the deeper. Susan Brink writes, Al was my first husband, my children's father, 
my former husband and my lifelong friend. He died last year, suddenly and too soon. In moments when my feelings are inexplicable, I am drawn to the dictionary to examine the meaning of the word husband, because 34 years after our divorce, I feel as though my husband has died. But Jack is my husband today. He's the love of my life. A love that began in 1984, was abandoned and then rekindled in 2006. We moved in together in 2009 and married in 2013. Jack is very much alive. I'm not a widow, I'm a wife. So I find myself pondering a word whose meaning I thought I knew as I grieved the loss of my husband while spending happy days and nights with my husband. Al and I divorced in 1980, the year the percentage of marriages ending in divorce in the U.S. peaked at 52%. Nearly half the women of my generation and more than 40% of the men have been divorced. By now, there must be hundreds of thousands of people in my shoes, losing an ex-spouse, having an assortment of feelings about the loss and finding no easy way to talk about it. When Al died, I took time alone with his body to say once more that I was sorry for hurting him, to say once more that I forgave him for hurting me, to tell him I was glad he was my husband and that he always will be central to our family, two daughters and six grandchildren. I've wondered at my grief, as unexpected as the death itself. We had 14 years together and 34 years apart, yet the loss hit me harder than the three most grievous deaths I've known, my sister, my mother and my best friend. I don't believe divorce is ever easy, and ours wasn't. But we soon came back to a love, a friendship, and a mutual respect that never left us. And always we kept our eyes on our children. We did our best by them, even as we moved on in our separate spheres. And the spheres were very separate. I took our children from Chicago to Oregon, where I always wanted to live. Al agreed to it. I've known for a long time that you wanted to live a different kind of life, he told me. You have to go. You have to try it. And so we began a shared custody that had them with me during the school year, with him during the school vacations. I introduced them, even as I was introducing myself, to clean, pure nature. We walked through forests, next to waterfalls, as they whined, When can we go home? My legs are tired. And my favorite... If you've seen one tree, you've seen them all. We drank water from pristine rivers that had not yet run through any town. We cross-country skied in the Cascades, hung out with old hippies on a communal farm, and marveled at the Pacific Ocean from cliffs and beaches made more for contemplating the existence of God than for sunbathing. At first reluctant in our new surroundings, they came to appreciate the natural world. I learnt about nutrition and changed our diet to include whole wheat bread and the abundance of fruits and vegetables available in Oregon. We pickled wild blackberries and made ice cream. During Christmas, summer and spring vacations, Al taught the girls the rules of football and baseball as they, th as they sat cheering and watching his big screen TV. They saw all the Star Wars movies more than once. They went bowling. They learned to play poker. They ate white bread sandwiches and McDonald's hamburgers and Dunkin' Donuts. They ordered pizza. 
They learned their grandmother's recipes for Christmas cookies and chicken paprika and pork with dumplings and sauerkraut. They took trips and visited every amusement park from Cedar Point in Ohio to Disney World in Orlando. He signed them up for baton lessons and they marched with their cousins in Fourth of July parades. They rode their bikes on familiar suburban streets with each other, their old friends and their cousins. Al and I didn't care that the lifestyle was different in each of our homes. I knew that when they were with him, they were well-loved and safe. He knew the same when they were with me. Our daughters learned that the people they loved most could live very different kinds of lives. As an adult, my youngest daughter once said, I have the best mother in the world and the best father, and I don't understand how you were ever married to each other. They learned not to judge people for how they choose to live, but to look deeper. When my oldest daughter was twelve, her eleven-year-old cousin was in a quandary about what to wear to a friend's party. My daughter said, What difference does it make? If they're really your friends, they won't care what you wear. Many years later, that cousin said to me, How did she know that at such a young age? Our spheres often overlapped. We stopped being a couple, but we remained a family. After we divorced, we worked together for graduations, weddings, births and birthdays. We were a tag team in providing help to our daughters and babysitting for our grandchildren. We laughed about the exuberance of the little ones and called them wild things. It was our job to love them unconditionally, and we did. In telephone calls and emails to each other, we bragged up the beauty and brilliance of our kids and grandkids like we could do with no other human being without being told to put a sock in it. When our children hit bumps in the road, we helped them out. We pooled our money to buy elaborate gifts for birthdays ending in zero. Our marriage didn't work, but our family did. My mourning for him is my own. His partnership in loving and caring for our family is irreplaceable. But I also feel the loss through the heartbreak of our daughters. They have cried to the point of exhaustion. They can be broken all over again when they see a photograph, hear a turn of phrase, or imagine an empty place at a holiday table. They want him back, so do I. He's gone, the man who stood next to me at the core of our family, through our years together and through all the years apart. Now I stand here alone, the head of the clan. When he died, I embraced the title of matriarch and felt its weight. In my new sphere, I'm not alone. I have a husband. But since Al died, I've accidentally called Jack by Al's name. It never happened before, and I think I'm conflating husband. Nothing has prepared me for this role without a name. Ex-widow? I think neither of us regretted the divorce. But I'm re-evaluating what divorce means, just as I re-evaluated many years ago what marriage meant. Now I wonder about ties that can be broken, and those that cannot. Maybe for some... A husband is till death do us part. Maybe it's so, especially when there are children, or when the marriage began propelled by hormones and the sweeping promises of youth. It is probably not so for everyone, but it is so for me. I count myself lucky. I have loved two husbands. The one from my youth has died. The one walking beside me into old age listens and understands my grief over the loss of my husband. And so too now we must part, though I hope it will only be for a week. Thanks for being with the program today. 
please dedicate the positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. And I hope you will have a wonderful time till we meet again. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.